Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I am Christopher Bandini. I am one of the hosts of New Books and Psychoanalysis of the New Books Network. Uh, We're here tonight at the Manhattan Institute uh, Colloquium, which is being hosted at the NYU Kimmel Center. And I am here to speak tonight with Dr. Nathan Kravis, who is the clinical professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College and has written the book On the Couch, A Repressed History of the Analytic Couch from Plato to Freud. Dr. Kravis is uh, the Associate Director of the DeWitt Wallace Institute for the History of Psychiatry, Training, and Supervising Analyst at the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. He is the Associate Editor, Editor, Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, author of On the Couch, A Repressed History of the Analytic Couch from Plato to Freud, which is MIT Press, 2017. Other recent publications include The Analyst's Hatred of Analysis, Psychoanalytic Quarterly, 2013, uh, Fuck Redux, JAPA, 2013, and The Googled and Googling Analyst, uh, JAPA, 2017. So um, welcome, Dr. Kravis, and as the the tradition here at New Books in Psychoanalysis, uh, can you start by telling us uh, what led you to uh, to write this book? Thank you, Chris. I'm embarrassed to reveal how long a gestation this project has had because um, it was more than 25 years ago um, when, as a young candidate in psychoanalytic training, I was riding the subway four days a week to go lie on my analyst's couch and um, found myself staring across the platform at one of those huge, glossy subway posters, six feet long by four feet high, um, as shown here with the image of an analytic couch bearing the inscription, some people find the same peace of mind sitting in a pew, come home at Easter, the Catholic Archdiocese of New York. And I thought to myself, well, like, who is this ad for? Not me, certainly. Um, And I felt like the Catholic Archdiocese must have felt fairly confident that New York City subway riders... um, would instantly decode this image and get the you know the implied comparison between couch and pew, um, even those with little or no interest in psychoanalysis or any form of psychotherapy whatsoever. But there they were in English and Spanish in the subway, and um, I I kind of scratched my head, and this was at a time when, of course. Um, psychoanalysis was already beginning to wane in terms of its popularity as a treatment modality. And also when many analysts were beginning to express ambivalence about the use of the couch at all, yet it struck me that nevertheless, at the same exact cultural moment, the couch was a really powerful cultural symbol and and an icon, really, a cultural icon that everybody seems to understand, and I felt that that was borne out in um, not only New Yorker cartoons, I have plenty of New Yorker cartoons in my 
book, but also in images like this one. Now, this is an illustration we're looking at from a 2006 New Yorker magazine article on um, post-9-11 CIA interrogation techniques. And what we're looking at is um, an image of a, I guess, a terrorism suspect or a prisoner reclining on um, a cot or analytic-like cot couch thing, um, and seated behind him is, I guess, a CIA officer in a drab gray suit with a white shirt and red tie and dark glasses, scribbling away furiously on his notebook. Um, and um, images like that one, and and like this one, this New York Times uh, article from 2007, um, with the title saying something about how psychoanalysis is widely deplored in uh, psychology de departments on undergraduate campuses, right? Um, and, and the accompanying illustration shows um, an analytic couch has been unceremoniously dumped, defenestrated, um, and left to sort of smush itself on the ground, um, symbolizing, you know, the antipathy towards psychology departments, towards psychoanalysis. Um, and, you know, um, we also find, like, advertisements <laughs> like this one um, placed by the De Beers Diamond Company. Um, a couch with a diamond. A couch with a diamond yeah. necklace on it um, with the title, You're Getting Her a Diamond? Seek Professional Help Immediately, um, where it's obvious that professional help is symbolized by the couch. And so where this got me thinking, Chris, was that, you know, the couch is in a lot of ways healthier than psychoanalysis <laughs> in terms of its aliveness um, in this sort of public lexicon of cultural symbols for self-awareness, for self-reflection, or for healing, or for therapy in general. Um, everybody knows what the couch means. And... Um, yet, when I looked into the psychoanalytic literature about the provenance of the couch, that is, its origins as part of psychoanalytic technique, I found that nobody seemed to know why. Because, you know, everybody knows that Freud said um, in his 1913 paper on beginning the treatment, um, I have patients lie on the couch, I've adopted that custom because I can't stand being stared at all day. But that's not much of a theory of technique, is it? Um, I mean, it's maybe a proto-theory, to credit him, with the beginnings of an idea that there are advantages to the analyst to not being looked at, so the analyst can tune into her or his unconscious reverie or free associations to what the analysand is saying. But after all, if the idea is to have visual separation between analyst and analysand, you don't need recumbents for that. You, you could simply ha arrange the chairs to be facing away from one another, right? So you don't need to have one party lying down and an while another sits if the idea is visual separation. So I didn't find the analytic literature very illuminating uh, on the question of the origins of the use of the couch in psychoanalysis. So what I decided I needed to do, Chris, was to delve into the social history of posture 
And that's what I try to do in my book. I try to look at the social history of posture um, for possible explanations of the couch's resilience, if you will, as a cultural icon. And one of the things I found was that far from connoting passivity or submission to medical authority, reclining in social settings has for a long time served to represent something about freedom and about luxury and about interiority. And you see this going back 2,500 years. Um, here are, here's an image of a Kleene monument. Kleene is the Greek word for couch. And so this is a, this is a funerary monument um, of a ordinary person reclining in the in on a on a bed-like movable couch um, that the Greeks called the kline, whence our words clinic and recline. And the person is cupping a dining bowl in his or her left hand, and the right hand is free for eating. And this is the classic reclining dining pose of the Greek symposion and the Roman convivium. So the Romans had this, continued this custom after the Greeks. And the point I wanted to make about this is that this is not an aristocratic depiction of, you know, a wealthy person's accomplishments or virtues. That's not what's being shown here, right? We're seeing somebody dining because... I think um, the reclining dining posture indicated the freedom of being able to sort of enjoy oneself in this way. And that the, these funerary monuments, Chris, were made not by aristocrats, because aristocrats really wanted to depict their virtues and their accomplishments on their funerary monuments. Now, these were made by lower or middle class people, sometimes slaves who had attained freedom, and wanted to show that they had risen to a position in society where they could too could enjoy the freedom of reclining dining. So not just physical freedom, but but then mental freedom as well. Exactly, exactly. And um, I think that this tradition, um, you know, was carried on. Um, after after the Greeks and the Romans, and we see it in fact in the earliest images of the Last Supper. So this slide I have up now is a mosaic from a church in Ravenna that was made in around the year 500. Okay, this is the earliest surviving depiction we have of the Last Supper. And you see in this image, Jesus and the apostles are reclining, like in the Greco-Roman reclining dining tradition. Um, and this image is very important to me, Chris, because this is as far back as we can go towards something we can call close to historical accuracy about what the Last Supper might have actually looked like. They weren't politely seated around a dining table as if everybody had place cards. 
That's the Last Supper depiction we're more accustomed to from Renaissance paintings. Um, I could have shown one by Leonardo, but this is one by Ugolino di Siena from the 14th century. And it shows uh, exactly as I just said, Jesus and the apostles, they're around a dining table like you would have a dinner party in your home. But if you're going for historical accuracy, um, you should really go with the reclining dining posture because that, that's what it really was more like. And, well, and, well, it reminds me of, of the Passover supper. We're saying, why do we, why do we recline this, this tonight? Why do we... Yeah, I think that, was, that reflects a Hellenic influence on Judaism. I mean, so does drinking a lot of wine. I mean, four cups? <laughs> I mean, come on, where does that come from if not from the tradition of a bunch of Greek men, you know, lying around and at a poetry slam, you know, uh, <laughs> drinking too much and luxuriating? So yeah, I think the, 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 that's a Hellenic influence on, on the Seder custom. These are really beautiful slides. I just wanted to add to anyone listening to the podcast that these, we're going to have links to some of them so you can, you can see the, the slides that we're describing. How, uh, how long did it get you, take you to, uh, to compile them, and, and how did you find them? Did... You know, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into in doing this book because it really, in the end, felt like I was doing two books. Um, because I do try in the book to argue both semantically and visually. So the book has a lot of images, like 170 or more images, um, with the text woven in. And I'm, because I'm trying to say something about the visual representation of the couch and the couch as a, as I said, as a cultural icon of sorts. So the, the whole sort of reclining dining thing, I think then kind of got, got continued in, in neoclassical portraiture. Um, this is a sculpture by Canova of Napoleon's sister. It's a marble, beautiful marble statue of her reclining on, if you look at it, something that looks very much like the Greek kline, the Greek couch um, that I showed you in some of those funerary monument images earlier, right? Um, and um, th the same with um, this painting by David of Madame Recamier from the early 19th century. She's posed here in a white, it's kind of like a Roman toga, I guess. Um, a very beautiful woman who did not wish to pose in, in such sev a severe setting. She wanted to look sexy and beautiful, but David wanted her to, wanted to evoke, I think, that classical reclining posture of, of the Greeks and the Romans. So he has her on this curved, this, this sofa with uh, curved arms at either end. Um, and this became a very, very famous image. Um, and, you know, I, what I was trying to do, Chris, in, in looking at some of these images and including them in my book was uh, I was trying to get myself from the Greek Kline and the Greeks and the Romans to Freud and Freud's analytic couch. So I was trying to construct, if you will, a sort of furniture genealogy or lineage um, that would get me from 2,500 years ago to today. And, you know, I, I looked at a lot of paintings. I looked at a lot of furniture. Um, and I want to show you... Um, 
<laughs> this image is a page from the 1902 Sears Roebuck catalog, um, our latest in Roman divans. Um, but I wanted to show you um, something I found along the way, a piece of furniture called the canapé à confident. So what we're looking at here is a large, beautiful sofa um, that has a sort of bench-like portion in the middle and then um, sort of seating at either end. And what intrigued me about this kind of furniture, the canapé à confident, is that I mean, this is obviously a huge piece of furniture that could only be put in a grand, you know, a large room like a grand parlor or something. But it nevertheless kind of asserts the possibility of some private conversation, some sort of tête-à-tête within that rather large domestic space. And um, it intrigued me to see how um, Freud's analytic setup kind of has a somewhat of an echo of the canapé à confident, where one person is seated and the other has the opportunity to recline. I'm just wondering, why didn't Freud also recline? What was the... <laughs> if the reclining was such a, such a good idea? I guess because he wanted to smoke his cigars. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking if Freud was around today, we're like, what if Freud had like picked a standing desk? We'd all be... <laughs> a lot of this is based in, uh, in Freud's choice of decor, in a way, and kind of what he thought was yes useful. Yes, but I think he he chose this particular choreography, this particular setup, because I think whether he formulated it or not as a thought in his mind, he was stepping into, and this is my point, a centuries-long tradition uh, that in which recumbent speech in which reclining in the presence of another person in order to talk to that other person has a very rich tradition going back to the Greeks and the Romans. Um, so one of the things I wanted to show you also in these series of images is um, here, here in this slide we have one of those Greek Kleene monuments on the left and the Canova sculpture of Napoleon's sister I showed you on the right. And I want, just wanted you to see how similar the poses are. Um, and the same in, in some of these, sorry. Um, and my point in, in juxtaposing these images is to show that Within the West, there's a sort of leitmotif in the iconography of recumbents and recumbent posture that retains all the original ambiguities of the reclining dining posture of the Greeks and the Romans in the sense that these settings, I think, sort of stake out the ambiguous intersection of freedom, luxury, comfort, eroticism, interiority. These are two side-by-side -side photos of two women. Uh, you know who the women are in these photos? Just for those listening to the podcast, two, re two recumbent I women. I don't. Oh, Venus. Yeah, right. yeah oh, I'm sorry. On the, on the left is a portrait of Venus, and on, on the right, a, a woman reclining in the woods. 
Um, so one of the things that I try to describe is how the sofa became a really popular furniture item in the 18th century. And if you think about it, if people were going to really recline on a sofa, there had to be concomitant changes, not just in furniture, but in clothing and in manners. Because after all, women wear, wearing tight corsets or dresses with bustles couldn't recline on a sofa. Neither could men wearing very tight waistcoats. So clothing had to be changing, manners had to be changing, um, and um, the idea of the comfort and the sensibilities about what is comfortable had to be changing. So here we're looking at a painting from the 1740s by Devis, Mr. and Mrs. Richard Bull. Um, and what I, there, I don't know what this looks like to you, Chris, but for a while, this was your idea of a rollicking good time in a cozy, comfortable home. <laughs> uh, to me, that is a rollicking good time. <laughs> I mean, I think... People lying down on a couch. By our, by our standard today, this looks kind of uptight and not so comfortable. At one point, it was, you know, somebody's idea of a very comfortable home. And then it wasn't. This was. Um, so now we're looking at a painting by Detroit, um, The Declaration of Love, um, in which a man is seated on a sofa very close to a woman, talking very intimately. Um, and um, now you see the sofa in this image. is a, It's a beautiful red plush sofa, upholstered, um, but with a rather stiff high back. It's still not very comfortable by our standards today, but for an early 18th century sofa, this was considered extremely plush and comfortable. My point is simply that ideals of domestic comfort and intimate conversation in, in furniture changed in tandem with changes in clothing, manners, deportment, such that it made it, you know, certain forms of, of intimate conversation in social settings became more possible and more popular. Um, another thing I found, Chris, was what I call in my book the medicalization of comfort. Um, and what I mean by this is that, um, you know, are you familiar at all with the open-air rescue of the TB sanitarium from the 19th and into, well into the 20th centuries? The, yes, that was the Magic Mountain. Guess, right, Thomas, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. For 150 years, that was the treatment for TB. There were no antibiotics. Um, and the, I, the what you did for people with TB, and don't forget, TB was the leading cause of death in, in the 18th and 19th century in Europe and the U.S., TB. So TB was a big deal. And Freud, like every uh, physician, but pretty much every person of his generation, would have been steeped in the culture of 
the TB sanitarium. They were all over the place. And the, the chaise longue of the TB sanitarium. Um, and what I found was that a lot of the people who designed um, chaises for the TB sanitaria, and don't forget, if you're, if you're reclining for the open-air rest cure, it has to be on a, on a chaise that is portable. It has to be cleansable, uh, so it can't be upholstered. It has to be easily you know, sanitized. Um, and this form of design became adopted by a lot of modernist architects and designers to evolve from a TV sanitarium chaise into a sort of sleek upscale fixture of, of the modernist decor. But here we have in this slide um, from Harper's Magazine in 1878, a picture, a drawing of a, pa a private patient's room in the New York hospital. And you can see how, um, you know, the patient is reclining. Um, his wife is sitting in a rocking chair. The other family members are comfortably seated by. And this is what I mean by sort of the importation of ideals of domestic comfort into the medical setting, what I call the medicalization of comfort. Um, and um, the medicalization of comfort, these are images here from TB sanitaria. Um, that's the chaise long um, or day bed or chaise. Um, this is an image just depicting the portable chaise of the TB sanitarium. This is from the American Journal of Tuberculosis um, from the early 20th century. Um, and I wanted you to see in this poster art from Freud's Vienna how closely the new modernist decor echoes the chaise of the TB sanitarium. It almost looks like a lawn chair. Yeah, yeah. But then it became something sleek, um, and very modern looking. Same configuration, same kind of design, really, just a little fancier. Um, this is the architect Charlotte Perriand reclining on the chaise of her design. And she, like Le Cobusier, like Breuer, Marcel Breuer, um, like Chermayev, like a number of the leading architects of the modernist decor had earlier in their careers been among the designers of um, TB sanitaria and their furnishings. Um, so this gets picked up by the modernist decor and it's kind of just a hop, skip, and a jump from there to Mies van der Rohe. Um, but there's something else I wanted to show you about... Um, about this, Chris. And um, I'm showing now the cover image um, from my book, a painting by Casasi Carbo entitled After the Ball from 1895. So here we see a woman who has been dancing, I guess, and she's exhausted and she's plopped down in her black, beautiful black evening gown 
um, on a beautiful green sofa. And in her right hand, she has, she's holding a yellow book. That's a salacious French novel. And I'm sure you know that for a long time, men thought that it was dangerous for women to read novels because uh, women, you know, supposedly had too vivid imaginations. They were too easily corruptible morally and female sexuality was thought to be poorly contained or out of control. And in my book, I try to show how this led to the sexualization of the woman reader. So here in this 18th century painting by Baudouin called The Reader, um, we see uh, a woman sort of slumped over um, the overstimulating novel she's been reading droops from her right hand, her breasts are exposed, and her left hand has slipped suspiciously beneath her skirts. And in this painting from about a century later by Wurtz called The Reader of Novels, 1853, um, this naked woman um, is reading a book. She's lost herself in some sort of sensual transport. And do you see how in the lower left, the devil keeps slipping her one ruinous novel after another? And I argue that the sexualization of the woman reader, as seen here in this painting, I think defends against a danger even greater than the strength of female sexuality. And that's the danger of a woman having her own thoughts, um, having her own unmediated experience of literature, having her own mind. And I think that's what recumbent speech really represents. It represents the affirmation in the presence of another person of having a mind of one's own. And I think we're starting to get close to um, mesmerism and hypnotism and how did that influence the choice of the couch, the use of the couch? I think that was very important, Chris, because obviously um, mesmeric and hypnotic practices involved fainting or swooning, so you had to have furniture appropriate for that, becoming entranced. Um, there were rival schools in France about the nature of hypnosis when Freud was just entering medical training. Um, and the rivals were basically Charcot in Paris and Bernheim in Nancy. And Charcot thought that hypnotizability was pathognomonic of hysteria. Bernheim, in the opposing school, argued, no, suggestibility is just a universal human trait along a continuum. Some people are more suggestible or hypnotizable than others, but there's nothing inherently pathological about it. And interestingly, Freud served as the German translator of both those French authors who were arch rivals and provided in German prefaces to each of his translations. He was like a little ambivalent about that. But the point is that the Bernheim or Nancy school of hypnotism believed that not only it was that it was okay to sort of fall asleep or drift, drift off when you were entranced, they encouraged it. And I think that's an echo of, of the Greek and Roman tradition and the idea that you're in a very relaxed and maybe slightly different state 
when you recline in the presence of another person for the purpose of conducting some sort of colloquy? Uh, so we know now that the the couch is used um, differently. How long do you think it was in sole use uh, as in analytically? Until what point? Well, um, was it used solely even even in the early days? I, I think that the overwhelming majority of analysts who trained while Freud was still alive. Um, and then subsequently for several generations of analysts, almost all either required or recommended the use of the couch. So I think it was a pretty common practice. There were some outliers. There were people like uh, Harry Stack Sullivan who I think eschewed the use of the couch. Um, Frieda from Reichman. There were others who were more flexible about the use of the couch. But um, I think most analysts kind of unquestioningly adopted the use of the couch. And even though today, I don't think any analyst would argue that posture is the essential part of analytic treatment, still, almost every analyst has a couch in her or his office. So there's something that resonates still. It was a, a training requirement. You had to use the couch. Right. right. I mean, there still is in the American Psychoanalytic Association that um, in institutes accredited by the American candidates have to conduct um, analyses on the couch. I mean, I think it's a rule that's honored in the breach. Um, it's, I think it would be unusual for supervisors of candidates today to be really inflexible about the use of the couch. Um, again, I, I don't think anybody thinks that lying on a couch is a guarantor of establishing an analytic practice, uh, analytic process. I mean, nobody thinks that really. I don't, or very few people, I think, w would contend that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think obviously good technique calls for sensitivity and flexibility about posture. And I would add that, you know, Chris, there is no real evidentiary basis for a lot of what we do in psychoanalysis. There's no research that has been done yet about not only about posture in analytic treatment, but about frequency of sessions or duration of treatment. So all we're going on really is tradition. That doesn't mean that that tradition is meaningless or is, doesn't count for something. It does. But I'm just pointing out that no one, I believe that no one can really claim to know for whom or for what type of problems the, couch, the use of the couch is best suited. Um, I, I don't, and, and by the same token, I, I think what that really means is that it's not warranted to either mandate or disparage the use of the couch on the part of our institutions and training centers because we just don't know, um, or at least we don't know ahead of time who's going to really benefit, who's going to feel most comfortable or uncomfortable and, and find that it's not really conducive to good treatment for them. We don't know that in advance, I would contend. And so it doesn't make sense to have a hard line policy about it. Like in the New Yorker cartoons, patients often come in with very loaded uh, feelings about the couch. Yes, um, but loaded in both directions. I, I've had patients come into my office and 
um, start in face-to-face psychotherapy and say to me, hey, what's the couch for? And they're curious. Can I try it? Um, I kind of feel like I want to get to us to get to know each other first before somebody is Velcros themselves to the couch. Um, but I feel that a, a lot of people are really interested and see it as um, something that can, as in the classical tradition, aid free association or promote free association. Some people find that they can speak more freely about things that they feel ashamed of or are embarrassed by if they're not looking directly in the therapist's face. Um, and and some people fi- feel abandoned when they lie on the couch and can't see the analyst um, and feel that it's not conducive to um, a real interpersonal exchange. So I think it varies quite a bit, which is why it doesn't make sense to have a hard and fast rule about it. Um, and I think we do our trainees a disservice if we do have inflexible rules about such things. And patients uh, sometimes use the couch in ways that we uh, we don't always think they're going to use it. Like they sit, uh, they may sit, in, we may sit not in, in back of them, but they may position themselves so we're facing them even though they're lying down on the couch. Yeah. Uh, people tried all sorts of things, and I think that's fine. Our job as analysts is to talk about it and to be curious about it and to inquire about what seems to work best and why people think it helps them to do one thing as opposed to another, or or even to change positions at certain points in a treatment. That's also okay in my book as long as it gets discussed. So where do you see the couch going? Is it, to, is it on its way out? Are we going to keep it and keep it around? I think there are a lot of analysts don't have couches now. I think the couch is an endangered species in a way. Um, But on the other hand, to go back to where I started, I think the couch is a really resilient cultural icon. I don't think the couch is disappearing as a symbol of interiority. Um, And I, my optimistic self, Chris, believes that things may swing back in our direction because especially in our digital era when everybody's on their phones and devices all the time and I feel in a way interiority is kind of under assault like never before, that people are coming more and more perhaps, I know this may sound optimistic, I hope it doesn't sound Pollyannish, to value opportunities for real conversation um, and and for an experience of interiority and and psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, like art and aesthetic experience and perhaps some spiritual experiences, are among our most cherished paths to interiority. And I think people that will continue to value that. Um, I think it's true. Um, I wanted to show you one last image, if I may, of. Um, we can go back to some of these later if you wish. Um, but um, um, this, is, this is a cover of a magazine called Spectrum. Your smartphone will see you now. Empty chair, smartphone contig- configured as an analytic couch. Um, and this is um, a cartoon where everybody is 
engrossed in their cell phones and devices. Um, this is a rendering from a recent issue of the TLS called Plato's Cave. Okay, and what we're seeing is a cartoon of of people hunched together in a dark cave, transfixed by their phones and devices, children, adults. Everybody has plugged in and checked out. Um, and um, um, this is a recent photograph taken at the Louvre of museum goers snapping pictures of the Mona Lisa with their cell phones. So they've all seen the Mona Lisa now, and they can all document that on their cell phones and on their Facebook pages. They've seen the Mona Lisa. They're all having the same experience of the same painting. And I feel that the digital age has, in some ways, it's wonderful. It's opened up access to knowledge like never before. But a side effect of the digital age, I feel, is what I call the homogenization of experience. And this is what I mean by the homogenization of experience, a pull towards sameness. And I think that, I'll close with this, that while it's true we're all wedded to our devices, this is a photograph of a newlywed couple, um, just married, um, staring at the screens of their cell phones, um, not looking at each other or relating to each other, just married. Um, I think it's true that, that we are all um, wedded to our devices. Um, and I think all of us, um, you know, sometimes lapse into the homogenization of experience. Our devices pull us towards sameness all the time. But I feel that all of us must also try as best we can to be the preservationists, the ecologists, the custodians of the kind of freedom that we offer in psychoanalysis. Uh, what's been the response to the book? How has it been accepted? What kind of uh, comments are you getting from other psychoanalysts? Um, you know, one of the fun things about talking to audiences about the book is that um, even people who aren't necessarily super interested in the history in art history, furniture history, clothing history, none of which I'm expert in, by the way, either. I just am sort of traipsing across lots of different fields that I know rather little about, um, in a dilettantish way, you could say, but I, I prefer the literal sense of, instead of the pejorative sense of the word dilettante. Dilettante comes from delectio, meaning to delight. So I feel like I'm a delighter. Um, I feel that even though you know, people may not share my enthusiasm for art history and looking at tons of images of furniture. Um, everybody enjoys the opportunity to talk about their clinical experiences. And we've, we've all had, as you were saying earlier, um, you know, interesting experiences with, with um, patients who want to try the couch, who move from lying down to sitting up and maybe back to lying down or not. And so we all have our own sort of reference libraries in our minds of interesting experiences we've had that we could share and, and talk about among ourselves. And, and the book has been fun in that way and that it's brought out that kind of conversation. Maybe before we move on to the Q&A, we should, uh, in some self-disclosure, talk about what couches we have. <laughs> you go first. Uh, room, and, room and board. <laughs> room and board, about 72 inches long. People lie, uh, lay down with their feet over the edge of, and 
the edge. I have pillows for them, so they're not just resting their head on an armrest. But um, but it's not quite long enough. But it does the, it does the job. Uh huh. Uh huh. I didn't I didn't go to Queens to that store to get the uh, that store where you can buy the uh, analytic couches. I really, yeah, maybe the, I should maybe the, I should do back the, go back to that. The analytic couch company, I think it's called. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I think it was enjoyed more popularity um, in an earlier era. Um, but um, yeah, my couch is a. Uh, upholstered sort of um, modern version of a chaise long with a half-length backrest um, so that and with a bolster cushion so that people can choose to sit up on the couch with the bolster cushion behind them with using the backrest or lie on the couch um, as they wish thanks I think we're ready to move on to the Q&A now if anyone has a question uh, may make it onto the podcast so Floor is open. I'll start. I'll ask a quick question. Have you found that in writing the book that it has changed your use of the couch in any way? I feel that it's deepened my attachment to the use of the couch um, because I feel like it's sort of deepened my appreciation of what it means to me. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book, um, in fact, this is the title of my chapter eight, is The Analyst's Moral Interior. And what I mean to express with that phrase, the analyst's moral interior, is that office decor is ineluctably an enactment because the way we furnish and decorate our offices is a nonverbal communication about taste, but also not just aesthetics, but also our moral values. Like when we think about what Freud's office looked like with all his antiquities and vases and death masks and mummy portraits. Um, I say in the, my book, I describe Freud's office as a libidinized necropolis <laughs> um, because it was, in a way, his private theater of mourning and loss. Um, but you couldn't walk into Freud's office without seeing how important memory and remembrance was to him, and all the archaeological motifs that were so important to him about excavating the mind and uncovering layers of the repressed. And all of us who do clinical work situate us somewhere along a continuum that ranges from Freud's very lush, self-revelatory office decor with its sort of romantic motifs and its Orientalism, to invoke Edward Said's famous coinage, right? To what some analysts now prefer as a very Spartan, austere office decor with often almost no, nothing on the walls um, and, and no trappings of their personal lives. But my point is, Blair, that that too is a statement about the analyst's self-representation as an analyst. So... That's why I say that office decor is an enactment. You can't avoid expressing something about your self-representation self through your decor and furnishings. And there's a long-winded response to your question, but it brings me back to my, you know, trying to think more deeply about what I'm trying to express about myself, about my self-representation as an analyst, um, what the traditions of our profession mean to me, um, and 
what I am, you know, consciously or unconsciously conveying in the way I present myself and my office space to my patients. Uh, in terms of what you were saying about the archaeological uh, model, I mean, Freud was, uh, you know, very taken by, uh, uh, I think it's Schliemann, Schliemann? Schliemann. Mm -hmm. Schlie what is it? Schliemann. Schliemann. Mm -hmm. Schliemann. The uh, finding of Troy. And, Troy, yes. Uh, you know, and the archaeological model in late to late, well, around 1870s. And, um, you know, and you're saying the couch goes back to uh, ancient Greek, Roman, Hellenic mm -hmm. uh, tradition, and uh, obviously the uh, his uh, draw to uh, mythology and uh, the Oedipus myth being the core of uh, neurotic symptomatology. What, what do you think unconsciously or consciously was his... Uh, draw to uh, uh, ancient Greece? Um, I think it was very much part of his boyhood. Um, his gymnasium education was very rooted in, in, in classical literature and the classics. Um, I think he was very excited as a young boy and adolescent about the nascent field of archaeology, as you referenced, the discovery of Troy and all the amazing excavations that were taking place then and, and were big newspaper items um, as he was coming of age. So it was a very exciting intellectual, there was a lot of intellectual excitement around the sort of dawning of modern archaeology, um, which was a rediscovery of classical culture in some ways, and which called for a reassessment, if you think about it, of the meaning to us today of antiquity. You know, what was so important about these discoveries to Freud and his, his generation? What did it represent to them? I think to Freud it came to represent something about the value of remembrance, and, but also something about mourning and loss. You know, even though it was wonderful to see these things unearthed, they weren't perfectly preserved, and they only really hinted at all that was lost. Um, so I think that became very important to him, and um, a a as I was reflecting about what I'm trying to say about the analyst's moral interior, I realized that in my office, I ha one of the walls of my office is lined with a bookcase that goes floor to ceiling of all these books. And more than one patient has come in and said to me, you really read all those books? <laughs> um, to which my answer is no, I haven't. You know, some of them are books I've read. Some of them are books I feel I ought to have read but haven't yet, yet gotten around to reading. Um, some of them are books I think I might one day, you know, read when I have time, um, or I may use for some, draw upon for some future writing project. But I realized that that's part of my moral interior, because, because it's part of what I, I represent about myself. Not, it's not, it, I guess it's partly me trying to appear smart um, and had to be well-read. But, but it's also me trying to show that I stand on the shoulders of my analytic forebears. I place myself in, in a tradition of analytic literature that is meaningful to me and that I 
draw upon and that I turn to in times of quandary and problems and failure. And that, so that's part of my private theater of aspiration and regret. I have another comment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a question. It's a thought. Go for it. Um, in the age of the phones, we all face this. Um, I, there's, uh, there's, there's a conflict in me with using the couch. And I think sometimes I find it helpful, as you were saying, for people to feel freer, not have to look at me, uh, talk about things that are shameful. But then there's also this feeling of like, look at me. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. like, let's talk to each other. Let's have a conversation. And so the use of the couch can sometimes feel almost like the phone where you're just completely self-absorbed or absorbed into this other thing. Yes. Well, that's where I feel that it's a matter of negotiation and discussion. That, you know, as the clinician, I, I don't have a huge stake in someone being in one posture or another to conduct the treatment. I want us to have an analytic process if we can. Um, um, and I want us to be curious together about what we're doing with each other. Um, I don't really care, you know, exactly which posture that takes place in, although I do sometimes say to patients who are interested in psychoanalysis that I feel I, as an analyst, do my best work when they are lying on the couch because it does free me up to not attend to the visual social cues of nodding and smiling and showing that I'm attentive and interested, and it frees me up to attend to my own free associations to what the patient is saying and to maybe be able to speak more creatively, therefore, to the patient than one would in ordinary social conversation. So I value that very much, and I sometimes say that to patients who are considering the use of the couch. Um, but I try not to be doctrinaire about it or at all rigid about it. I don't want that. Um, I, don't, I don't want people to comply with my wishes, but I want them to know about how I think about the issue. Either. But um, I've seen a lot of different offices. There was, a, there was a photo article a few years ago where someone went and photographed analysts' offices. But by yes. Sebastian Zimmerman, I believe his right. name, a psychiatrist as well. And, and you know, what you say about how the, the way uh, an analyst decorates the office and where they position the couch and what you can see from the couch is so sometimes loaded that mm -hmm. I just, you were talking, I remembered once going into an analyst's office where they had a couch, his chair was directly behind the couch. The couch faced a portrait of Freud. So you, <laughs> you had to lie on the couch and stare at Freud, which just seemed a little overdetermined. It was like, really? To have, to have, should think about what, to have Freud the sort of holding his cigar glaring down at you. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to show you in some of these images. So here's Freud's office. Um, you know, gorgeous, plush, crammed with, you know, he couldn't be more loquacious, could he, in, you know, terms of his decor, um, because it speaks volumes of himself. Um, and here's a contemporary analyst's office that is, of a, you know, kind of, to me, at the other end of the spectrum. This one, too. Um, this is a past president of the IPA, the International Psychoanalytic Association, Echegoyen. Um, you know, Pretty sparse, spare, ascetic decor. Um, and 
again, this goes back to my point about the analyst's moral interior. You know, you can position yourself anywhere you want along the continuum of decor, but you have to position yourself somewhere, and it's going to mean something about about your self-representation as an analyst. Thank you. Thank a you. Few, a few thank yous before we go. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, the staff at Manhattan Institute, Joe and Vincent, and the co-directors, Steve Kirshner and Blair Kasdan, uh, and the uh, staff, uh, the media staff here at NYU for setting this all up for us. And uh, especially thanks to our live audience and uh, for being with us tonight. And uh, then to Dr. Nathan Kravis, who uh, wrote the book On the Couch, A Repressed History of the Analytic Couch from Plato to Freud. We've been talking about that for the last hour, and it's uh, by MIT Press, 2017. Uh, Again, thanks for coming. This has been Christopher Bandini for the New Books and Psychoanalysis podcast and the New Books Network. Thank you.